Welcome back, beloved. Today we're moving on to the book of Daniel, a simple reading and explanation, chapter 4. Uh, and this is another fairly simple chapter. You know, if you just read it straight through, which I recommend doing before I get started, um, it's not, you know, wildly complex, but there's a ton of rich, rich spiritual meaning to it. And just getting into the plan of God and the sovereignty of God uh, will cause you to have greater forms of worship of God as we study his word. And so that's my, that's my hope and my prayer for me and for you. And so I'm going to get right back into it. Daniel chapter 4 starts with Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. So it's a message. It might be a letter. It might be heralded or preached throughout his kingdom. And he writes, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, I believe Nebuchadnezzar is humbled in this chapter. I, I believe he, there's a very good chance he might get saved later on in this chapter, and I'll make my case for that. But the bottom line is right now, he's actually still a pagan king. He doesn't understand. When he says God is doing great signs and wonders, he's saying he's done them for me, right? And, and he's essentially... Uh, only believing in God due to these signs and wonders. And Jesus spoke about this a little bit. In John chapter 4, he said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And they didn't believe. And then he also said, a wicked and adulterous, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, Jesus, in his mercy and his grace, he offered many signs and many wonders to authenticate his gospel message. But it wasn't just because of the signs and wonders that people are to believe. And so we're not supposed to, like the thief on the cross who, who was not forgiven, he said, if you're the Messiah, save us. We're not supposed to look up to God and say, if you're the Messiah, if you're Christ, if you're God, show me a sign and then I will believe. That's what an evil an adulterous generation does. And so that's what essentially Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's seen all the signs of the Lord. He doesn't humble himself, but he, he believes in him due to those signs, and he's still not willing to humble himself. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. And so, once again, when we're talking about the kingdom of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and the coming kingdom of God, we have to, the whole book of Daniel is about this contrast. And if we don't keep Christ and his kingdom in the front of our minds, the book of Daniel can actually get a little bit boring. We, we miss the true meaning of it. It's all about the contrast between Babylon's kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world. If you live in America, you could say this government, this world system, which is against God, and the coming eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose dominion is from generation to generation. It's talking about time. Each generation, we're all under the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that verse in Revelation 11. I brought it up. The Bible records to us the future time when the Lord Jesus comes back in flaming fire. He comes back as a conquering king, and he takes back this authority. He said, when the seventh angel sounds in Revelation, there are loud voices in heaven, and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. All the kings are raging against Christ at his second coming. And he comes back and he takes back that authority on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's just so important to keep this contrast between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. This is how I like to, and this is how I think we need to read Daniel. 
So it goes on to say, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. So he's a king. He wants to live, you know, pleasurably in peace, just like we all do. This dream brings him anxieties. He says, these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So this is probably going on perhaps for days or weeks. We don't know. So he gives orders to bring into his presence all his wise men of Babylon, which the Lord would consider foolish, right? This is the astrologers, the the occultists, and, and you name it. So all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream that he's having. And so then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the diviners, they come in. And this time is different than Daniel 2. He relates the dream to them. So this is kind of silly. It really makes them look foolish. This time Nebuchadnezzar tells them the dream. He doesn't hold it back. And they still can't make its interpretation known to me. And, and I'm just being honest, beloved. If I were in this, if I were a false conjurer magician and a king made note a dream to me, I would sooner make up a reason than I would just tell him I had nothing, right? Th- these people aren't even smart enough to do that. They simply can't make its interpretation known to him. And so it's so important to understand God is constantly, the Holy Spirit constantly in the book of Daniel is showing the wisdom of God that is given to Daniel, given to his servants, given to his children, versus this false wisdom of magic, conjuring, spiritus, occultus. And Isaiah 47, I keep going back to Isaiah 47. This is before Israel's even taken captive into Babylon, before the fall of Babylon that God prophesies in, you know, in Isaiah. And it comes to pass. We'll probably go through Isaiah 47 much more uh, next week when we do Daniel chapter 5. But in Isaiah 47, God is calling out Babylon. He's calling out their false wisdom. He's calling them out for being ruthless and and sinful. And he says, and it's a really fearful condemnation in Isaiah 47. This is all about Babylon. He says, stand fast now in your spells. You know, kind of like we as true Christians were told to stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has set us free. This is like him mocking them or calling them out. He's saying, you stand fast in your spells, in your many sorceries, which you labored from your youth. From the beginning of the Tower of Babel, Babylon has been the source of astrology and occultism and all this false demonic wisdom. So now the Lord, before destroying them, says, stand fast in that. He says, perhaps you'll be able to profit. Maybe you can cause fear. Maybe you can cause trembling. He say, he's basically saying you can't, but maybe you can, right? It's, it's a taunt. And he says, you're wearied, you're tired with your many counsels, your counselors. He then says, he calls them out. And, and this is fearful. I can't imagine the God of heaven speaking this before he destroys a nation, right? Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. That is terrifying. Any Christians who are dabbling in the Enneagram, which is really just, you know, astrology and occultism, any so-called Christians or people of God dabbling in magician, you know, magic or conjure, any of this false wisdom, you need to hear this in fear. He says, he says, let now them come forth and see if they can save you from what will come upon you. And he says, behold, they become like stubble. The fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the fire of God's wrath, from the power of the flame. And then he says, this will not be, I mean, can you imagine God saying this? My skin is trembling right now. This will not be a coal to warm yourself by, 
nor a fire to sit before. Do you understand that? He's talking about hell. He's saying the judgment coming for you, this isn't a little fire you roast marshmallows around. Like stand fast in these sorceries. You will not be able to profit. It's a, it's really a call to repent and turn away from that. But this is all about Babylon. And so you know, Daniel chapter 4 and, and Daniel chapter 2, again and again and again, we're seeing this contrast between the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God, which God's wisdom the world considers foolish. You know, there's this contrast there. And so then he says, they can't make its interpretation known to me, even though I told them. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. So he's still claiming his false God and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. He doesn't understand that there's one God, so he just thinks there's a spirit of some holy gods in Daniel, which there is, it's the Holy Spirit. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells the dream to Daniel, and this is what he says. He says, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, he thinks he's a magician even though he's not, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, nothing confuses you, he understands there's a wisdom in Daniel, Tell me the visions of my dream, which I've seen along with its interpretation. And then he goes on. These were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, this is a fairly straightforward dream and prophecy. And Daniel gives the full interpretation. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. This tree is the kingdom of Babylon. The tree grew large. It became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Babylon had control of the known world. It was a glorious kingdom that God had bestowed in his mercy on on Nebuchadnezzar. Its foliage was beautiful. Its fruit abundant, right? There's probably many vassal cities and states of Babylon. In it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. It could be talking about animals, but also human beings and tribes. All living creatures fed themselves from it, from his kingdom. And once again, compare and contrast the kingdom of Babylon and the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 13. He, He presented them a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now, this seed is smaller than all other seeds. It's not like Babylon. It doesn't start out big and then get small and and be crushed. No, no, it starts out small, right? There was very few Christians that followed Jesus. But when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants. It becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. All the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations that are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and enter the kingdom of heaven with Christ reigning as king, It's contrasting. It's the same language. The birds of the air come and nest in its branches, just like this worldly kingdom God had bestowed on on Nebuchadnezzar. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. So Daniel goes on to say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say, Then in the vision, in my mind, I watched and I was on my bed and behold, an angelic watcher. It's a really cool name for angels, right? An angelic watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. Can you imagine? He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree, destroy the kingdom, right? Or or chop down the tree and cut off its branches. It's not totally destroyed. You'll see it in a second. Strip its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. 
yet. It's not a total destruction of Babylon. It was probably, who knows what was going on during this time, but you're going to see there's a, a seven-year judgment for Nebuchadnezzar. And during that time, you know, many from the kingdom was probably in a total uproar and very weak at this time. But he says, leave the stump with its roots in the ground. Don't uproot the whole kingdom of Babylon. Don't destroy it, but leave it there with a band of iron and bronze around it. It can't grow in the new grass of the field and let him be let him be, this is Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to see this in a second. Let him, the king, be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. This is a severe judgment. It's kind of interesting. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And so this literally happens. You're going to see it in a few verses. Nebuchadnezzar is driven insane. He's, he's made a fool out of, and he goes and behaves like an animal. He's wet with rain every day. He lives, his nails grow. He eats grass like an ox. You're going to see it, and it's all meant to humble him. goes on to say, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. Man, this is incredible. God, you know, through Scripture reveals a lot about not only how the governments give us order on earth, but there's angelic watchers that give order in the heavenly realm, both angels and demons. And and Daniel reveals some of the hierarchy of God's universe to us. We can't go beyond what's written But there was a decree of the angelic watchers, and a decision was a command of the holy ones. In order, this was why this decree was given by God. And then Psalm 104, I believe, says his angels perform his word, right? So they're delivering this decree, and this is why. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. There is one God, one Most High God. He's the ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. Not the smartest, it's whoever God wants for his glory. And so this is why this decree is sent out. It was meant to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And a couple of verses I find amazing. You know, Romans 13 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those uh, which exist are established by God. Now, this is not a right and wrong. I'm not breaking down this verse. Uh, if your government wants you to sin, you should not do it. You should obey God rather than man. However, what I'm saying is God has set up all authority on earth and all authority in heaven. There's nothing that happens that God does not cause or allow for his glory. And this is very practical for Christians to understand. When God gives us a good president in America, that could be a blessing. If he allows a foolish president in America, that could be for wrath or or a curse in a sense. And all of that is established by God. And so we can submit to that government in joy and in humility and pray for that government, no matter how wicked it is, as long as we are, are not encouraged or forced to sin or, or like, for example, not share the gospel or something of that nature, then we have to disobey the government. But even in that regard, God is still sovereign over that wicked government. He never loses his sovereignty. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Jeremiah 27 says, I have made the earth, Yahweh is speaking, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one 
who is pleasing in my sight. It doesn't mean Nebuchadnezzar, you know, it even talks about that in Jeremiah 27. I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. doesn't mean he's a righteous man. It means for God's purpose, it glorifies him to allow Nebuchadnezzar to have this power. And so then going back to the vision, right? So once again, we're really, Daniel 4 is harping on the overwhelming sovereignty of God over his creatures, over his creation. God has created everything. He can dispose of it however he wants. So that really is the theme of this chapter. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. So he's finished telling him the dream. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom are able to make it known to me, the interpretation. But you are able, he has faith in Daniel, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. And Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, is appalled. So Daniel is scared. He probably understands immediately what this means. And he says his thoughts alarmed him. So Daniel is having anxiety at this point, right? Daniel's probably fearful of what he has to tell the king, but he responds in truth and courage. And it's really encouraging for us to study how Daniel responds. So the king responds and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. The king is encouraging Daniel like, hey, just tell me the truth. You know, it's, you're just the messenger, essentially. I won't shoot the messenger. And Belshazzar, Daniel, replies, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you. So he loves Nebuchadnezzar in a way. He has a pity for him. He, they, they have a relationship. Uh, if only, you know, the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. He's saying it's bad news. It's not good. I wish it was on your enemies and not on you. And so he goes on to say, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height was whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, the foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged in. He says, it's you, O king, you've become great, your kingdom, you've grown strong, your majesty has become great, it's reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. God has given all these things into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says, in that you saw, the king saw an angelic watcher, an angel, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. He says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree. That's so important. I love that word decree. I want to pause here. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. So before Daniel explains the judgment from God to Nebuchadnezzar, who I imagine Nebuchadnezzar must be quaking in his boots right now or quaking in his armor. He's scared. And before Daniel reveals this decree, and remember, Daniel already has such respect by Nebuchadnezzar because he told Nebuchadnezzar a previous dream without Nebuchadnezzar even sharing what the dream was. He literally, God gave it to him out of thin air, right? So Nebuchadnezzar has to be scared here. And before Daniel reveals it, he says, this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon you. And I just want to bring up a few verses talking about the Lord's decrees. We know even Christians, we were predestined, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world based on the counsel of God. The Trinity took counsel within itself and decreed our salvation. And Psalm 2, Jesus himself was decreed. You know, we hear about all the nations raging against the Lord and scoffing and, 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 and trying to cast away the law of God. And in Psalm 2, you have this messianic prophecy 
of the second coming of Christ. And Yahweh says, as for me, I've installed my king, Jesus, upon Zion. This is a thousand years before Christ is born, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. It's so important to understand God is a sovereign king. He decrees things and they come to pass. He said to me, you are my son. The decree of God, Yahweh, is that Jesus is his son. He says, today I've begotten of you. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. Once again, contrasting the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of this decreed son of God. Now, Jesus was the son of God from all eternity. I'm saying he entered his own creation. He said, you know, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's the day Christ was born, the day Christ is given authority in Revelation 11. And God will decree that Christ is the ruler over heaven and earth. He's already decreed that. Every knee will bow to Jesus. And the Father says, ask of me, I'll, I'll give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. So we have revealed to us in Scripture not only the decree about Nebuchadnezzar, but also the counsel of God's will in bringing forth us to salvation, and the decree that Jesus will rule all the nations. And so the decrees of God, that word decree glorifies his sovereign rulership. And so this is the decree against Nebuchadnezzar, that he be driven away from mankind, and that his dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. You're going to be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven. He basically loses his mind. Seven periods of time pass over you. I believe that's seven years until you recognize, this is why God is doing this, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's why I brought up Psalm 2. It pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness of the Godhead would dwell. And it pleased the Father to let Jesus inherit all the nations who are redeemed by him. Jesus is Lord of heaven, earth, and even hell. It's I love the decrees of God. I love the sovereignty of God. It's a, it's a pillow I rest my head on at night. In fact, there's nothing that comforts the saints more to know that God is sovereign over everything. And there's nothing that so enrages non-believers more than, than that God is in control of everything. And I find that amazing. And so this is why God brings about this judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, so that he knows that God is the ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whomever he wishes. Daniel goes on to say, in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you. This is a temporary, embarrassing, painful judgment. Um, it, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize it is heaven that rules. Therefore, this is what Daniel says, and this is courageous, and I think we need to reflect this courage when we evangelize. Daniel is before a king who can kill him. He's just delivered terrible, terrifying news, and then he calls on him to repent, kind of like John the Baptist called on people to repent. He says, therefore, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. Be done with them. Do righteousness and, and, and doing righteousness and from your iniquities. Break away from your sin and iniquity. Show mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. He's basically saying repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance like John the Baptist. He's saying give to the poor. Maybe God will have mercy on you. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to him. All this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, one year later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Just imagine this for a minute. It's a powerful picture. He's walking on the roof of his castle, essentially, everything that you know brings him glory. And the king reflects and says, and he's saying it in pride, he would not repent. It's, it's incredibly clear. He just, he just wouldn't repent. 
And he says, in pride, is this not Babylon the great? And I find that word amazing. In Revelation 18 and 17, we're, we hear of a final world system. It's a government and false religion. And it's called mystery, Babylon the great. Mystery, comma, so it's a mystery, Babylon the great. And so the, the words are exact here. I'm not going to go into that too much, but there's a correlation there. It's a government and religious system that's false, which I believe the Tower of Babel was, and I believe this, this Neo-Babylonian empire was for about 100 years. So the king reflects and says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal reg- residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, very important. Take this all the way back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. They were building it to make a name for themselves. That's what false religion is about. It's all about human fraternity. It's all about glorifying mankind or a man or a group of men. Whereas true wisdom, true religion from God says mankind is depraved and fallen and sinful and wicked and Christ came to die for the ungodly. And so, you know, this is very reminiscent of Genesis 11. Let's build a tower for our name. And he says, look, by the might of my power, the glory of my majesty, I've built a royal residence for myself. So he, he would not repent. He was prideful. Then it says, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. This is that angelic watcher. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. It's incredible. I mean, it's just amazing to hear of the decrees of God. He says, you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So God mercifully gives Nebuchadnezzar a whole nother year to listen to Daniel. And he simply won't, and he goes up and he lifts himself up against God. And God could have struck him dead right there, but he he does this plan. God is merciful. God is loving. He enacts this plan that horribly humiliates and embarrasses King Nebuchadnezzar. And it says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, only the Lord knows how, and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws. I mean, he's probably losing his mind, anxious and feverish the entire time. Who knows? But he is gone from the height. He's literally the ruler of the known world to acting like an animal in the woods. And so Job, you know, Job, that ancient saint, look at what he spoke of, Yahweh. Job had no scripture. He had no sacrificial system. He had no law. Uh, he probably had, you know, prophets from Adam day and, and all the way down. But he, Job was a prophet. Job knew Yahweh. And this is what he said of Yahweh. He said, He deprives uh, of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. That's what God did with Nebuchadnezzar. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. And you might be saying, you know what? This is kind of harsh of God. This is a, a serious judgment. No, it's not, beloved. Nebuchadnezzar, just like me and you, deserves to go to hell. I want to show you another decree from God through an angel. And I think putting this decree on Herod and and comparing and contrasting it with Nebuchadnezzar, you'll see the judgment of God and the holiness of God and that God hates sin. But you're also going to see how God is having mercy on Nebuchadnezzar right now. In Acts chapter 12, after Christ has died and ascended in New Testament, 
There's an appointed day, and Herod put on his royal apparel, and he took his seat on the rostrum, and he began delivering address to the people, and, and the people kept crying out. Now, I believe he was fixing a socioeconomic thing for them. He was fixing something about land or something about trade. He was giving the people something they want, okay? And this Herod, it's pretty amazing. There's multiple Herods in the New Testament. One Herod orders the slaughtering of the... I just want you to understand God's sovereignty here. It's beyond human reasoning, okay? As far as I can tell, there's three or more Herods in the New Testament. The first Herod, which is not this Herod, he orders the slaughtering of the infants uh, so that Jesus might be killed. And, and we don't hear of any radical divine judgment. The second Herod was present. Jesus was delivered over to him, and I'm sure he mocked him and handed him back to Pontius Pilate or whatever he did. No, no insane divine judgment we hear of. This one, and, and when I say that, there's always judgment from God. There's always, you know, even through natural causes. But you're going to see this judgment takes it to another level. Now, this Herod, which we know not much about, he's fixing this issue. He's delivering words to the people that they probably want to hear. And listen to what happens. The people cry out to Herod, this ruler, the voice of a God and not of a man, which is extremely blasphemous because they had the God man there. They had killed him and crucified him. And here they say, look, the voice of a God, not of a man. They're praising Herod. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. Romans 1, it's, it's nobody gives God glory apart from Christ, and that's why we reject God. And so he doesn't give God glory. And so the angel strikes him, no warning, no acting like an animal eating grass. The angel of the Lord strikes him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. So, I mean, that's a severe judgment coming on this man because they called him God and he didn't give God the glory. And so Nebuchadnezzar is getting off easy in my book. And so we'll go back to Nebuchadnezzar now. So his hair would grown like eagle's feathers. He had spent seven years or so out in the woods eating grass. His nails are like bird's claws. But this is so key. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. It's almost kind of like how you get saved, beloved. If you're wallowing in your filth, if you're walking in sin, if you're like the prodigal son, it's written of the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, he started to move back towards the Father. And so Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes toward heaven. He says, my reason returned to me, and I bless the Most High, and I praise and honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an eternal dominion, an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to two generations. So he recognizes God's kingdom. He recognizes God's dominion. He blesses the most high. Psalm 145, just to go over this, says the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures throughout all generation. The Lord sustains all who fall and he raises up all who are bowed down. I believe Nebuchadnezzar was genuinely humbled here and the Lord raised him back up and, and uh, had mercy and pity on him. Uh, whether temporarily or eternally. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar finishes off by saying, all the inhabitants of the earth. So now he has an understanding of the holiness of God. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Romans chapter 3, we have all become worthless. We have fallen into sin. It is grievous. He says, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand and no one can say to him, what have you done? So now he's really understanding the sovereignty of God. He's not saying God is doing these things for me. He's saying God is doing what God is doing 
for himself, for his glory. He's basically saying, I am a pawn on God's chessboard, right? And that's where he really seems here to have a better understanding of the true God. Just like Job, Job chapter 9, you know, he says, if God were to snatch away, take something away, who can restrain him? Who can say to God, what are you doing? You know, in Job chapter 42, Uh, Job says, I know when he finally sees the Lord, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. When Paul is writing in Romans chapter nine about how God, uh, you know, he says he has mercy on whoever he wants and he actually hardens whoever he wants. He says, you're going to say to me, well, then why does God find fault then? How is God just to find fault if like Pharaoh, he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Uh, they say, for who resists God's will? And this is Paul's response to them. He says, basically, shut your mouth. He says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Like nobody can look at God and say, well, God, you made me like this, so I have to keep sinning. Or you are, no, no, you don't understand God. Job even said, how much of a whisper of, we only know God as if somebody was whispering to us. We don't know the full volume of God. We don't understand his counsel. We don't fully, we just taste of his degrees, uh, decrees. We, we can't answer back to God. The thing molded, the clay can't say to the molder, why'd you make me like this? That doesn't make any sense. We are all pawns on his chessboard in a sense. And Isaiah 40, the Lord is speaking and he says, who's directed the spirit of the Lord as his counselor? Who informed the Lord? Nobody. The Lord doesn't need me for ministry. I need the Lord. The Lord doesn't need us. The Lord needs nothing. Who has ever counseled or informed the Lord of anything? He knows everything from all eternity. With whom did he consult? Who gave the Lord understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Who informed him of the way of understanding? Nobody. He says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. You see, the evil wickedness and foolishness of idolatry to think we can make a God out of stone or a God out of anything. God says, no, no, no. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. God lifts up the continents like fine dust. Even Lebanon, an entire nation, is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. You see, all burnt offerings, all sacrifices are merely meant to show us that we can never satisfy God. That's why the fire on the altar continued forever. It just kept going and going and going. They can't take away our sin. All of the world would not satisfy God's wrath because we've fallen into sin. We, we can't, we're not a sufficient sacrifice. That's why hell is an eternal lake of fire. All the nations are as nothing before God. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him? I know this is harsh language. Read Romans 3. This is why the gospel is an aroma of death to those who are perishing. We've become worthless. The nations are worthless. Nothing can satisfy God. Nothing can offer to God anything in our sinful condition. And that's why the fact that God in his own love was sent his own son to die for us is amazing. It's good news that even though we're worthless, God had pity for us. He had mercy on us. It's an aroma of life to those who are being saved. There's nobody we can liken God to. We have no idea what God is like. He is holy, 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 and we are sinful, sinful, sinful. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar is seeing that now. And he says, at that time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. 
He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is the last thing Nebuchadnezzar ever says. And in Daniel chapter 5, I believe Daniel speaks about Nebuchadnezzar saying uh, that he practiced righteousness from here on to the end of his days. However, um, this is the last thing Nebuchadnezzar ever personally says. And this is why I believe he was genuinely granted repentance and faith in the coming Messiah. I believe he, he, you know, I believe we will see him in heaven. I could be wrong on that, but what a great story that, that Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king that wanted to throw Daniel in the fire or throw Daniel's friends in the fire and did, will be forgiven by God. Doesn't that just magnify the grace of God? And so I, I tend to think based on this verse, he, he did, he was granted repentance and he is a, a child of God. And I hope so, but I don't, I don't know for sure. But he finishes with, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. I like that he, he mentions not just the kingdom now. He knows there's a king, a person, there's a, there's a redeemer, there's a Messiah, the king of heaven. For all his works are true. And his ways are just. He's not angry at God for judging him. He knows God is just. God is true. And he humbles himself. He said, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. God is a good father. He can humble those who walk in pride. He can humble me. He can humble you. Uh, He can humble anyone. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar sees that there. And so I want to end with this verse talking about the king of heaven. Jesus was before Pilate. And Pilate said, are you a king? And this is so important to understand with the contrast between the kingdom of God uh, and the kingdom of the devil or the kingdom of the world. And Jesus said, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Beloved, this is so important to understand. When we study the sovereignty of God, especially when a fallen sinful man like me explains to you the sovereignty of God, We might come away thinking God is a bit harsh. In fact, when we um, study his justice, his holiness, his wrath, his sovereignty, those are doctrines that show us uh, glorious, beautiful attributes of God. But we also need to understand and balance them out with the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And so you have to understand the same king of heaven. Jesus was the king of heaven. Jesus is the son of God from all eternity. The same Jesus that caused Nebuchadnezzar to to go into the woods and and be judged. The same God uh, and Christ who struck Herod and destroyed him. The same Almighty Most High who lifts up the nations and the islands as if they're nothing. The same one that says all of the nations are literally worthless and not even sufficient for a burnt offering. The same one who is worthy of all power, all honor, all glory is Jesus. He he came. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the cross, you know, it says of Jesus, he despised the shame. I, I believe Jesus hated being embarrassed. As the King, Almighty God in human flesh, uh, he literally came amongst the rebellious enemies and he was spit on. His beard was plucked out. He was mocked. He was punched. He was crucified naked. He was made fun of probably by women, children, and men. He was embarrassed and he is the king of heaven and earth who, who can and will destroy much of his creation in wrath, but he's also a loving, merciful God. And before the day of his vengeance, he brought about the day of salvation. That's what we live in, where this God, this king, almighty, sovereign, just, holy, angry, wrathful, is also loving, merciful, and gracious. And when you understand all the attributes of God, you will naturally glorify and and worship him in a more proper manner. It's so important for us to understand that Christ, the king of the universe, the, the glorious one, died for the ungodly, died for rebels. 
That is a king. I don't know about you, beloved. That's a king I can get behind. That's a king who I want to die for. That's a king who I'm not forced to serve him. I get to serve him. And so Daniel chapter 4 is all about the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the authority of God. And we must always not forget that that king of heaven that Nebuchadnezzar bowed his knees to was born of the Virgin Mary, entered his own creation to die for his enemies. He's a God of love, mercy, grace, justice, holiness, and wrath. And I I love him and I pray you do too. And so that's Daniel 4. And next week we'll move on to Daniel 5.